Hello, it's Dr. Dan Guerrero coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 21st of April, 2021. We have been discussing how the immune system interacts with epigenetic and chromatin remodeling to generate the normal functioning of the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, and indeed, the entire intact organism that results in the human being. We're leading to a much larger discussion of how aging is a phenomenon which is inevitable and which is nevertheless not as temporal as we normally consider. Now, by that I mean temporal age or chronicity of the number of years a person has reached isn't the only indicator of whether or not a person is entering the last stages of their aging and, of course, getting to the point where there are mortal consequences to that aging and they die. Almost every human being is interested in knowing something about that at the individual level. And they look at neuroscience and they ask neuroscientists and biochemists, and of course, the medical community um, for the last 100 years or so to come up with theories and then ultimately experiments to analyze the aging process to get a better handle on potentially increasing lifespan. And then I think much more importantly, increasing the quality of whatever lifespan uh, is indeed um, procured. Now, there is a genetic component, there is an environmental component, and there, of course, is an immune component, which together generate an epigenome that is individualized for each person. And this is why even monozygotic twins will not get the same diseases and will not necessarily live to the same age, even given that there could be uh, etiologic agents such as parasites or pathogens that can kill, kill an individual in any stage of life, or of course, any accidental deaths. Um, even given all of that, monozygotic twins still do not have identical metabolic and genetic um, phenotypes. And indeed, those phenotypes are not directly associated just with genotype. They're more directly associated with the epigenotype. Remember, the epigenome is the covalent modification of DNA, RNA, and protein that does not result in discrete sequence changes in any of the nucleic acid, but rather is found as basic signature for how genes are expressed, how they're expressed, when they're expressed, and in which tissue they're expressed is the hallmark of epigenetic organization. And this is something that has been on the forefront of scientific research now for at least 20 years or longer. And it's been studied in lower organisms, such as Drosophila, such as in C. elegans, 
Um, and then it was discovered that it also, there is a epigenetic component even in microorganisms. But we're not interested in microorganismal biochemistry here and authentic biochemistry. We're interested in human metabolism. That's what I've devoted my podcast towards. So we can look at all that uh, literature and we can certainly gain a lot of information from it. What we really want to uh, emphasize is human metabolism. And because these arc of lectures going way back to the fall now of 2020, we're looking at a very specific component of human biology uh, at the biochemical and physiological levels. And that is the aging process and the aging process being earmarked with morbidity and ultimately mortality and death. So last two lectures, I've been talking to you about uh, just basic structures of the immune response, a little bit about the epigenome. And this was, of course, um, previously folded into my discussion of several disease states, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, prefrontal dementia. Last week, we, uh, last time we uh, met, we talked about ALS. And in my other series of lectures, I've been talking to you about basic metabolism and also cellular differentiation, because we're putting together here a dialectical event ontology of aging. And again, that's what I said I'm leading to, uh, with video lectures, and I've already laid down one of them. I'll lay down three or four more before we're finished here, and I hope to be finished by summer. So <clears throat> let's continue on this discussion of the immune system within the central nervous system and how the immune system is linked to a specific neuropsychiatric disease and how examining that process helps to generate theories and below that, hypotheses on how we might be able to get a better understanding of what indeed aging is beyond just the level of senescence that is indeed intimately involved with aging, but that there's something beyond chronicity uh, that's occurring at this phenomenological level and indeed at the pathophysiological and pathobiochemical levels. So let's get started with this lecture, though, with that kind of uh, breathy um, introduction. So you'll recall that what I was saying last time is that the immune response is probably functioning to generate the network synaptic connections in the brain and development throughout life. I also told you that same immune response is at the forefront of how this series of processes at the level of central nervous system synaptogenesis and synaptic degeneration is, is afforded in the morbidity level of later stage life, okay? And that's what we're going to spend more time on today, but we're going to look at a disease that actually starts off in the very young, um, but that understanding the mechanisms of this very complex disease, which is autism spectrum disorder, which I've written a couple of review articles on, helped me to grasp onto, to apprehend a whole different body of literature that I had not been looking at um, to get a better handle on what kind of hypotheses we can generate linking the central nervous system disorders of, a, of the elderly with the immune responses that can help generate that, such as neurodegeneration is what we're talking about, 
And then linking all that again, again, again to the aging process and mortality. Okay, so let's talk about autism spectrum disorder. It's of course well established that um, ASD is one of the most heritable and therefore genome-based human diseases, but I would say more epigenome-based. Now, besides a strong genetic component for ASD, and there is one, for example, monozygotic twins have about a 90% chance of sharing that disease, a chance that is, but the same same disease in dizygotic twins, you're down to five to 10% comorbidity, which is well below a threshold that you would think there is a genetic component that is so highly heritable, yet it is heritable at some level. But, but the problem we have is there's no single gene that has emerged as specifically linked uh, either as causing autism, and I usually don't talk about causality about chemistry, or even correlated to autism, although there are several candidates. So recently, many candidate genes that we've talked about in, in the review articles I've written have been linked to ASD, but there's no single locus or even allele that's common for all who share the disease. Now that's, that's not necessarily meaning that there isn't some uh, constellation of, epi, of epigenetic phenomenon and epistatic phenomenon, that's gene-gene interaction at the level of epigenomic signature changes, right, one on top of the other, that aren't linked to it. It's just that we haven't dissolved those interactions at a level that we can say, aha, it's this constellation of genes at this level of alteration of expression that will always lead to this particular phenotype. We just don't have that, even though it's been studied extensively, I mean, really extensively at the molecular level and even at the pathobiochemical level for a good 20 years. So besides a strong yet elusive genetic determinant, the environment obviously plays a consistent role in ASD. Now here again comes a lot of conflict in the literature. Many hypotheses have been presented to explain the environmental components of the disease. People have suggested nutrition, economic status, immune status, level of vaccination. You know, that's gotten a lot of really uh, negative feedback over the years. General health care, as well as environmental pollutants and even family life have all been uh, suggested to be associated with autism spectrum disorder. But really, if you look at the literature, the peer-reviewed literature, none of those environmental parameters, and I do include the immune status as environmental because the immune system is constantly interacting with the environment, none of them have been directly linked to cause or even correlate directly to autism spectrum disorder. Many years of research, many referred publications are indeed unable to describe a direct causal relationship or even a pattern for acquiring ASD. Indeed, among the anomalies of ASD include the high incidence in the middle and upper middle class young children, as opposed to underprivileged kids who are found in poverty. Poor health conditions for even an undernourished pregnant mother and new baby are not contributors to ASD. This suggests the possibility of rather ironic causes including maybe an increase in sanitary conditions, which could contribute to an unchallenged immune system and perhaps later life pregnancies among the more educated and affluent. That's also been out there, right? There is one rather mysterious, though, and I won't even say it's mysterious. It's, 
it's downright um, clear, and yet we do not understand it. Risk factor for ASD in which that male children are four to five times more likely to have ASD than female children. Now, there are implications for epigenetic and chromatin remodeling here at a single gene level for ASD, but there's also global chromatin alterations in coordinated, even larger genetic and epigenetic networking. Some of the phenomena involve inherited and sex-linked mutations because of that one I just mentioned to you, but others appear to arise de novo in the population. So where you can't see a genetic component and they can arise in the family. Now those overall changes in mechanisms of gene expression have been characterized as either single nucleotide polymorphisms and most importantly, by copy number variations or CNVs that result from a genome-wide chromosomal abnormality, including large deletions and duplications. The immune system appears to play a major role in these diseases and indeed can be linked to the accumulation of this chromosomal variation. Okay. And I don't think it's any surprise to people who have been listening to this podcast or that other, some of the mechanisms we've already worked out. It's been shown that duplication in the maternal genome at, for example, chromosome 15 can account for about 3% of reported ASD cases. Now, that sounds really small, but it's better than anything else we've been able to correlate. Okay, One chromosome. 3% of reported ASDs to a specific pattern of duplication of genes. And it's only a pattern. It's a whole constellation of genes that become duplicated, which means you get back into an epistatic environment. So the duplications give rise to copy number variations, which have become the new paradigm, not just understanding ASD, but understanding complex traits in humans and in pathophysiological responses and diseases, such as neuropsychiatric diseases, for example, autism spectrum disorder. This seems to be a common mechanism for neuropsychiatric diseases in that duplications and deletions have been associated with copy number variations for genes involved in things like neural development and synaptic plasticity. And you see this in ASD, but you also see it in schizophrenia uh, and in other neuropsychiatric disorders. So it's not specific. The accumulation of copy number variations in certain CNS-associated genes has been directly implicated in numerous forms of ASD. But the mechanisms of this de novo CNV production are really still classically at least unknown. When I say classically, I mean we do not have hypotheses that have been tested and results generated and evidence procured that allow us to do an induction. Okay. But we do know that CNV can be associated, copy number variation. So it's worth looking at. Now from my point of view, CNV is just a really interesting mechanism of alteration of gene expression, which which again links 
gene-gene interactions, or what we call epistasis, with a global change in gene expression that can be carried on after cell division and even after meiosis that we call epigenetics, right? Which still does not lead to uh, necessarily changes in nucleotide sequence, right? So these aren't mutations, right? So I started searching for molecular mechanisms for copy number variations. And I landed on the recombination associated genes. Uh, these are called the RAG1, RAG2 system. And they have been well described to support recombination within the B and T lymphocytes. And what they what what RAG does, RAG1, RAG2 do, those two gene products do, they're basically recombinases, DNA recombinases. But they're more than that, as we'll see. But what they do is they generate, uh, classically, the immunoglobulin and T-cell receptor recombination patterns, which allows for the acquired immune system to function in vertebrates and, in fact, of course, in humans. Now, a paper published in Feb's journal in 2017 tells us something rather interesting. The antigen receptor genes that give rise to the T-cell receptor the B cell receptor, and indeed the secreted immunoglobulins, or they're also called antibodies, of course, are comprised of arrays of gene segments. But the assembly of these gene segments in a variety of recombinations actually provides the unique source of diversity that's necessary for antigen recognition sites of certain proteins that act with their own epitopes as antigens. And this seems to be, this is indeed the key to adaptive immunity, including memory cell production. And we see this everywhere from jawed vertebrates all the way up to, uh, through cartilaginous fish to primates. So what we're talking about here is something called the VDJ recombination. Those are three different segments of genes. And that process is involving gene segment rearrangement, which are brought together. And this, again, is conducted by these proteins called the RAG proteins, RAG1 and RAG2, because they mediate a site-specific DNA double-stranded break and recombination mechanism that are suited and are indeed dedicated to this process. Okay, so we've talked about recombinases before. We talked about the flipper combinase, for example, uh, at some length. And that flipper combinase is a yeast system, the two micron yeast system that can be used to insert genes into specific loci, in fact, to generate loci in higher organisms. And I uh, wrote a paper about that oh, many years ago about using the FLP recombinase. Now, this is unique, though. The RAG recombinases are unique in that there is an evolutionary pattern of them, but what they're doing in humans is they're specifically involved in the recombination mechanisms for the acquired immune response. So you can see why they're very well um, primed to perhaps coordinate not just the immune response at a specific level, 
but this sculpting phenomenon of the central nervous system where microglia in association with resident lymphocytes are known to be involved, not just in controlling disease in the central nervous system, but indeed in synaptogenesis and in the pruning of axons during the aging process up to 30, 35 years old, and indeed later on in life in the neurodegeneration process or indeed also in uh, glioblastoma. Okay, so we, we have literature on this. So I'm, I, I, this is what I do in authentic biochemistry. I put this literature together. So, so stay with me here, okay? Now, talk a little bit more about this paper published in FEBS. A lot of work has been done to characterize these RAG proteins. And one of the things is just showing their biochemical reaction, right? So key features to that, and I'm going to tell it to you, is, are also relevant to the evolution of the proteins. But you need to be able to understand why that is. And the only way you can is if you know something about not just the evolutionary inheritance of the RAG proteins, but also obviously what the function is and the mechanism will reveal the function. Right? So you have this VDJ recombination and it begins with RAG, the protein, binding to what's known as a recombination signal sequence, or an RSS. Now, what RSSs do is they localize a specific gene segment of the antigen receptor locus. Now, this is going to be significant for the acquired immune response, okay? It's a very elegant patterning, if you will. So these sequences, these RSSs, consist of two conserved motifs the heptamer and the nonomer, so a seven nucleotide and a nine nucleotide sequence conserved structural function phenomenon, okay, that RAG functions on. Now, these are interrupted by less well-conserved spacer sequences of between 12 or 23 base pairs. This is a lot of specificity here that's already known. Now, the length of the spacer defines the RSS as either a 12 RSS or a 23 RSS because of the distinction of how many base pairs are between the two. And also, the efficient recombination occurs only when the RAG proteins bind 112 RSS and 123 RSS. And that's actually been given a name called the 1223 rule. Now, the binding of the RAG1. RAG2, and they do bind together as a heterotetramer, okay? They work together with the high-mobility group protein B1, B2, which we've talked about. Heterotetramer of RAG1, RAG2 bind together with HMGB1 or indeed HMGB2 to one RSS and synapses with a partner RSS allows for the DNA cleavage reaction to proceed. Okay, so you have the heterotetramer, then you have these HMGB1, HMGB2 group proteins, high mobility group proteins, all functioning at, at the level of chromatin. Now, nicking of the top strand of the DNA, just five prime of the heptamer, leaves a free, of course, three prime hydroxyl group. And that's going to attack the bottom strand 
through a direct transesterification. And that's going to lead to the formation of a DNA hairpin intermediate. That will then generate two types of ends, the hairpin coding end, which contains the gene segment, and the signal end, which contains just the RSS, right? Now, coding and signal ends are then processed by the non-homologous end-joining pathway, or the NHEJ pathway, okay? And you get signal joints and you get NHEJ pathway interactions with those signaling uh, joint ends, okay? So in vitro, you get also a signal end complex, which consists of rad proteins bound to the end of the signal, uh, of, the, of the sequence, of the RSS. And they can actually efficiently attack double-stranded or target DNA with a five base pair offset or what they call a stagger on those two DNA strands. So the RAG-mediated transposition phenomenon is actually the reaction. It's a transposition, you see, because it's moving between that 12 and that 23 interstitial DNA fragment, right? Which has been left behind because of the heptamer anonymer that became interrupted in the DNA because of the insertional phenomena that's going on because of that three prime hydroxyl attack, right? Do you understand this is working at the biochemical level, right? So RAG-mediated transposition, we're gonna call it, integrates the signal end and the intervening DNA end into the target with a staggered attack generating a target site wait for it, duplication. This is why these RAG proteins seem to me to have an intimate linkage to copy number variation because you're getting a target site duplication as an intermediate in the reaction phenomena and the reaction mechanism phenomena, right? And that, anyway, that, that target duplication, that TSD they call it, is only about five base pairs in length. So again, RAG-mediated cleavage begins with the binding of RAG1 and RAG2 along with that HMGB1 to a single RSS. Then you get a synapsis with a partner RSS and that gives you a cleavage reaction and, and it enables the hairpin to form and you get the NIC hairpin cleavage mechanism carried out and the reaction is most efficient when you have a 12 RSS with, with a with only one single 23 RSS. And again, we told you what that is. That's called the 12-23 rule. And after cleavage of this duplex, two types of products are generated. The hairpins are present on the DNA ends, containing the gene segments that are going through recombination, right? And those are gonna be known as the coding end. And they open up and they become processed by that non-homologous end-joining pathway which I've talked about in previous lectures in DNA repair, for example. And they generate that what's called the coding joint. So now you have a blunt DNA end, and that contains, of course, the RSSs. And that then that's known as the signaling end of this intermediate. Okay. So the signal ends also have the potential to undergo a transposition reaction 
in which that free three prime hydroxyl group after that nick has occurred attacks a single target piece of DNA with a stagger of that five base pairs I've just been talking about between the top strand and the bottom strand. And that will generate then that target site, that TSD, and you'll get the integration of the RSS and intervening DNA will, will now be loaded into the target DNA. And that's a transpositional phenomenon, which is the actual reaction that will lead to a genome instability that is normally very rare in the T-cell population, but which could result in expulsion of that T-cell lineage if the recombination fails, okay? So this is part of that programming of uh, T-cells in the learning process so that the T-cells will function, not just to deal with self and non-self, but to be fully functional for TCR recombination which is necessary for the T cells to be able to function at the level of specificity. You see how this works, right? All right, so I'm gonna leave you there with some of that really interesting mechanistic discussion. Hopefully now you're well deep down the rabbit hole I'm, I'm carrying you through and how the RAG proteins are involved in transpositional DNA recombination using non-homologous end joining that'll allow for the T cell receptor, indeed the B cell lineage of all the immunoglobulins, remember they're the products of recombination, to act as agents of the acquired immune response. Now, I'm, I am now suggesting to you it's the RAG system as a candidate for dealing with the highly complex uh, interactions at the central nervous system. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now.